One of the great and practical doctrines of the New Testament is the doctrine of assurance of salvation. It is possible to know if you really have eternal life and if you genuinely possess the glorious salvation Jesus Christ came to purchase. In fact, I would say this from Scripture, God wants us to know. Not only is it possible to know, God wants us to know. He doesn't want us to walk through life with doubts and questions and uncertainties. That is a miserable way to live life. God wants us to know with complete assurance. Some people object to this doctrine because they say it is presumptuous and prideful. They believe that if you make the claim that you know you are saved and you know you are going to heaven, then you are being prideful and presumptuous. Interestingly, the reason why they believe that is because they do not understand that our salvation does not depend on us in any way. If our salvation did depend on our goodness or our works or our merit, then it would be the pinnacle of pride to claim to have assurance of salvation. However, because our salvation depends completely on Christ and His work on the cross, we can and should have assurance. If we have yielded our lives to Him and received His perfect righteousness by faith, then we can and should have assurance of salvation. This was something the Apostle John wanted for the people he shepherded. It even prompted him to write a letter to them to help them understand that they can and should have assurance of salvation. That letter is called 1 John, and it is near the end of the New Testament in the Bible. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue our consideration of this chapter of John's first epistle or first letter. Please follow along as I read verses 3 through 6, although we already covered verses 3 through 5 last Lord's Day, but to get the context in our minds, let's begin reading in verse 3. John says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected or has been completed in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is a fascinating passage of scripture because of what it says and also because of how it unfolds. In verse 3, John says, And by this we know that we know him. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, By this we know that we are in him. It is obvious that John wants to help his readers understand the doctrine of assurance of salvation. The word know is used two times in verse 3. Once in verse 4, and again in verse 5. That's four times in three verses. 
John wants us to know how we can know that we truly know God and truly know His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, why is this so important? Because in John 17, 3, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, then, is knowing God and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship. So John wants to make sure that we know how we can know that we really know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say here? Well, he says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So is John teaching works salvation in this verse? Is he saying that we can make sure that we are saved, make sure we are a child of God, make sure we are headed to heaven by cranking out a life of good works? Not at all. John is not talking about the means of salvation, but rather he is talking about the result of salvation. The difference between those two statements is the difference between heaven and hell. If you believe that the way to be saved, the way to be right with God, is by striving to obey God, you will surely miss eternal life. Obedience is not the means of salvation, Obedience is the result of salvation. That is, someone who truly does know the Lord will have a longing to obey Him and an interest in obeying Him and a desire to obey Him and a disposition toward obeying Him. This is not something that is self-produced. This is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God in the new birth when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why John can state this so unapologetically. This is not something humanly produced. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, in, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Time and time and time again. The scripture tells us that salvation is a transformation. The Holy Spirit of God grants us repentance. The Holy Spirit of God grants us saving faith. We are born from above, born again, born anew. Salvation isn't us merely deciding to add some new dimension to our lives. If that were the case, then John would be talking about a form of works salvation here in this verse. He would be saying that the way we can know we are saved, the way we can know we are a child of God, the way we... The way we can know we are headed to heaven is by cranking out a life of good works. But that's not what he is saying. John understood that salvation is not addition. It's not adding something to your life. It's not addition. It is transformation. When we come to be in Christ or joined to Christ, God changes us. He gives us a new heart that longs to please Him, a new desire that wants to obey Him. That is why John can be certain about this test of salvation. God accomplishes the work at the root, and keeping His commandments is the fruit. John is not implying, however, that our, our obedience will be perfect. He has just said in chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin... 
we deceive ourselves. When the Lord transforms us, He doesn't eradicate the sinful disposition of our flesh. That is something that will be with us and something that we will battle until we die or until the Lord returns and our bodies are glorified. So John is not talking about perfection. He is talking about direction. The direction or orientation of our lives as prompted by the work of God within our hearts is a great means of assurance in our lives. And that is clearly John's goal in verses 3 through 5 as we saw in detail last Lord's Day. He wants us to know how we can know that we truly know Christ. And how is that? Just look at your life and see if the Lord has changed your heart in such a way that the direction of your life is to obey the Lord. It's that basic, that foundational. Do we stumble? Yes. Do we fall? Yes. Do we fail? Absolutely. We all do. But like Peter, we are graciously restored to the Lord to get back up and continue our walk with Him. So that is a description of a true child of God. So John writes with complete confidence that the true child of God will have a heart that is oriented toward obedience because John understood that this is something that is accomplished by God in salvation. Springboarding from that foundation, John adds another very important thought in verse 6, which is our focus this morning. He says this in verse 6, He who says he abides in him, or he who says he is abiding in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is a very interesting statement in this context. Notice that John has been talking about what does happen in the life of a Christian. And now he turns to what should happen in the life of a Christian. These ideas are not contradictory because God's work in salvation does not cancel out human responsibility. God's work in salvation does not cancel out human volition. Yes, it is true that in salvation God changes us and He gives us a new heart. But that doesn't mean that we are to become passive in the issue of obedience. Nowhere in the Bible do you see the Christian life described as being something in which we are passive. We have the responsibility to live out the newness of our life in Christ. Philippians 2.12 says this, Work out your own salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. That would be heresy. Not work for your salvation. It says work it out. In other words, as a child of God, you have salvation in your heart, in your soul. It's within you. Now work it out. Live it out. And then the very next verse of Philippians 2 says this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, beloved, the point is this. Divine action and human action are not contradictory as so many people think. It is the tension that we can't completely resolve in our minds, but we don't have to resolve it. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to resolve it. It's not expected of us to be able to resolve it. Just accept the fact that salvation involves God changing our hearts to give us a heart inclined toward obedience, and with that, 
comes the responsibility on our part to live out our new life in Christ. That is exactly what we see here in this passage. John has been talking in verses 3 through 5 about what does happen in the life of a Christian. This change, this transformation. And now in verse 6, he turns to what should happen in the life of every Christian. The Lord does change us. And he orients us toward obedience. But that doesn't mean that we will automatically just walk as he walked. You know very well that the Christian life isn't automatic. If you think it is, you haven't read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with exhortations to Christians to to live a certain way and to think a certain way and respond a certain way, behave a certain way, react a certain way. If those things were automatic, then we wouldn't need any of those exhortations. In fact, you could say it this way. If the Christian life were automatic, we wouldn't even need the Bible. Why would we need any instruction, any exhortation? It would just be automatic. It isn't automatic. That's why, coming off of verses 3 through 5, where John could maybe have been misunderstood to be saying, oh, it's just automatic. If you're a Christian, you'll just walk in obedience. So that he's not misunderstood, he adds verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. If we claim that we are abiding in Christ, then we ought to walk just as he walked. Now, John was not the only New Testament author to tell us that we ought to be like Christ. In Philippians 2.5, the Apostle Paul said this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude, let this perspective, let this approach to life be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, Scripture tells us that we ought to seek to imitate the character of our Lord. This is stated a number of different times and in a number of different ways. John says it here in 1 John 2.6. Paul says it in Philippians 2.5. Jesus himself said in Luke 6.40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. That is our goal as Christians. That is our desire. That is our ambition. That is our passion. We are to be like our Savior. We are to be like Jesus Christ. One day, we will be like that perfectly. Look at what John says over in chapter 3 of his letter. The very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 2. He says... Beloved, now we are the children of God. In other words, right now, we don't have to wait to say, well, am I, you know, I going to make it to heaven? Am I going to be a child of God? No, right now, we are children of God. We know that through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, it hasn't been manifested. He's not saying we haven't been told, because we have been told in Scripture. It hasn't been manifested or demonstrated what we're going to be. That's awaiting its consummation. But we do know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Here, John states that one day we will be like Christ perfectly. 
But in the meantime, we are to desire to be like him as much as is humanly possible. That should be our goal in life. That should be our desire, our ambition, our effort, our passion. I've told the story many times of the soldier in the army of Alexander the Great who drew back in battle. This was the cardinal sin for a soldier in Alexander's army. He was such a ferocious general and leader. So this soldier was taken to Alexander the Great to be questioned. The great military leader looked at him and asked, Son, what is your name? The soldier quietly and embarrassingly replied, My name is Alexander. Alexander the Great looked at him and said, Son, either change your ways or change your name. Beloved, we bear the name of Christ if we call ourselves Christians. We bear his name. The word Christian means little Christ. And that should govern our behavior. There's a sense in which we can say to one another, don't claim the name if you don't exhibit the character. We should seek to walk as Jesus walked, which means to live as he lived, to be as he was. How can we do that? In one sense, it's impossible if we think in terms of perfection. But in another sense, it is possible to be like our Lord in many ways. It is possible. That's why the New Testament uh, exhorts this of us repeatedly. We can be like Christ to a degree. But how? How can we, as sinful human beings, be like our Lord Jesus? I believe John gives us a clue in the way he words his statement back in chapter 2. Go back to our text there in chapter 2. I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 2, verse 6. Notice the exhortation again. He who says he abides in him, or he who says he is abiding in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Notice the word that John uses when he mentions this claim. He uses the word abide. He who says he is abiding in him. Beloved, we can never walk as Jesus walked unless we abide in him. This word was one that John had heard Jesus use over 50 years earlier. And let me tell you something. It stuck in John's mind. It attached itself in John's memory. It just, it locked itself in his brain. Let me show you how Jesus used this word, and he used it repeatedly. Back up with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15 is clearly, unquestionably, the background to 1 John 2.6. This is what was in the mind of John, the heart of John, the memory of John, when he made that statement, the one who says he is abiding in him ought to walk just as he walked. Now, as you go back to John 15, let me just give you the, the overview of where we're going to be looking at a specific passage this morning. John 15 is in the middle of a section in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. That section is called the Upper Room Discourse. 
It is called that because Jesus is in an upper room in Jerusalem with his disciples on Thursday night. And as he gathered with his disciples on this Thursday night, he gave them this extended discourse that John records in his gospel. The next morning at 9 o'clock, he will be nailed to a cross where he will hang until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. On this Thursday evening, Jesus is eating with his disciples. He is actually eating the meal known as Passover. And he was very eager to do this. In fact, he said to his disciples, With great desire, I have desire to eat this meal with you. He looked forward to this final Passover celebration and meal with his disciples. Interestingly, one of the gospel writers tells us that the disciples were sitting around arguing over who was the greatest. So Jesus interrupted the meal by washing the disciples' feet to teach them a farewell lesson of humility. Then Jesus proceeded to predict the betrayal by Judas in chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. In verse 31 of chapter 13, Jesus dismissed Judas from his presence for eternity. Judas had the privilege of walking with Jesus and being with Jesus and hanging around Jesus for three years, but he would no longer have the privilege of being with Jesus. He will spend eternity away from the presence of Jesus. It's unimaginable to have the privilege of being around Jesus for three years and then to spend eternity away from him. The departure of Judas was obviously a relief to Jesus in one sense. As long as Judas was present, Jesus wasn't free to discuss what was really on his mind. You know how that is. Surely you do. You don't feel free to open up and be yourself when there are people present who you know don't love you. And Judas didn't love our Lord. You almost sense a sigh of relief from Jesus as he begins giving his farewell address in chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. His departure was clearly on his mind. In addition to that, there was also a tremendous strain on Jesus because of his impending death. He knew what was going to happen the next day. His death had been weighing heavily on his mind his entire ministry. In fact, he began his ministry with that prediction in which he stated, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He knew what was going to happen at the culmination of his ministry. He thought about it throughout his ministry. He talked about it. But especially during the last six months, he talked about it repeatedly. So the pressure really came to a climax on this Thursday night. Jesus knew that the next morning he would become sin and he would be punished by his own father, abandoned by his own father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All this was on our Lord's heart as he sat with his men in the upper room. All of this was going through his mind, and yet, amazingly, but not surprisingly, his main concern was not for himself. His primary concern was that God would be glorified through his upcoming death. He prayed that more than once right here near the end. Father, glorify your name. Glorify yourself. In addition to that, Jesus was extremely concerned for the well-being of his disciples. 
He was concerned for them because he knew that they didn't yet grasp the fact that he was going to die. He has tried to tell them. And as I said, repeatedly during the last six months, he told them over and over again. They weren't getting it. And now that they are beginning on this final night to get the message, they are panicking. Panic is setting in. So Jesus seeks to calm their troubled hearts in chapter 14, when in verse 1 he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. More literally, he says, Stop having troubled hearts. The disciples were troubled, they were confused. Hatred for Jesus among the Jewish leaders was growing. They could see that. They could read what was going on in their society. In chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus predicted that one of the disciples, one of, the fr- one of their friends, co-workers, would betray him. In chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus told them he was going away somewhere that they could not come to immediately. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus also told the disciples that they were all going to forsake him on this night. And if all that wasn't bad enough, Jesus told them that Peter, their leader, and the strongest of the bunch, was going to deny him three times before the night was over. All of this dropped like a bomb on the disciples. So the disciples are in a tailspin emotionally. They wanted something concrete to which they could could hold to. Their minds were filled with questions. Where was Jesus going? What's he, what's he mean by this going away stuff? Why is he going to die? Who can kill him? How could the Messiah die? He's the Messiah. How can he die? They're troubled. They're confused. They're perplexed. How are they going to carry on? How will they be able to continue the ministry Jesus started Jesus has provided everything for them throughout their ministry. Now what? So Jesus seeks to comfort and encourage and challenge his men throughout this upper room discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So as we come to John 15, that's the context. That's the setting. That's the background. Jesus is preparing his men for his departure He's also preparing them for their ministry ahead. They have to take over when he's gone. And one of the most important things for them to understand about their walk with the Lord Jesus when he is gone, and one of the most important things for them to understand about their future ministry is the concept that Jesus teaches here in John 15. And as I said a moment ago, it is clear, it is obvious, that John never forgot this. Even though 50-some, maybe 60 years passed before he wrote 1 John, when he wrote 1 John 2.6, our text for this morning, John 15 was undoubtedly in his mind and heart. Because look at what Jesus says here. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The word true here in this verse has the idea of heavenly or eternal or divine. Jesus is the true vine. Formerly, God poured his life through Israel, through the nation of Israel. Formerly, connection with Israel brought blessing. Psalm 80, Ezekiel 19, Jeremiah 2, and Hosea 10 all speak of Israel as a vine. But Jesus, as Jesus speaks these words here in John 15, all that has changed. Jesus says, I am the true vine. By the way, do you you really believe that? 
Is Jesus the vine from which you draw your source of life? Your motivation for life? Your encouragement for life? Your strength for life? Today, we have substituted many, many other so-called vines. For some people, their vine is their bank account. Others draw their life from popular, popularity with people. Others draw their life from prestige, their position in society. Still others substitute education as their vine. There are a lot of things that we can put in place as our vine, but Jesus is the true vine, he says here in verse 1. He is the source of life. He is the source of strength. He is the source of fruitfulness. He is the source of living a fruitful life. And the father, the end of this verse says, is the vine dresser or the husbandman. The role of the Father is to do whatever is necessary to cause us to draw from the Son the source of our lives. And according to verse 2, the Father does one of two things. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus says here that the branches that don't bear fruit are removed. He takes them away. And the branches that do bear fruit are purged. The disciples would have understood these things. I mean, they lived in an agricultural uh, setting there in the first century. The one who cared for the vines would cut away the branches that did not bear fruit because they sapped energy from the fruit-bearing branches. And he would prune the fruit-bearing branches so they would bear more fruit. Now, I know what question is going through some of your minds. It is this. Who are these branches? Whom do they represent? Well, the first part of this verse is a reference to unbelievers, non-Christians. The branches that don't bear fruit are unbelievers. True believers will bear some fruit in life, at least some. In Matthew 13, 8, Matthew 13, 23, Jesus taught that not all believers will bear a bumper crop of fruit like they ought to, but all true believers will bear some fruit. Because again, if the life is within, some fruit is going to come out. So Jesus says in verse 2 that if a branch doesn't bear fruit, that proves that the individual is not regenerate, and therefore he will be taken away to judgment. If that's the case... If that's what Jesus is saying, then what does Jesus mean by the phrase, in me? The answer to that question is in the translation. Every other time this phrase is used in this section, it is translated adverbially instead of adjectivally. To be consistent, it should have been translated adverbially here as well, and then it would read like this, and this makes more sense. Every branch, not in me, he's not talking about a person who's in him, a Christian. Every branch not bearing fruit in me, he takes away. Every branch not bearing fruit in me, he takes away. That kind of translation is consistent with John's style of Greek throughout his gospel. So John is, or Jesus is saying this, anyone who does not bear fruit in Christ, anyone who does not bear fruit as a result of a relationship with Jesus proves he doesn't have the life of Jesus flowing through him, and that person is taken away in judgment, as verse 6 indicates. But the true believer who manifests his authenticity by bearing fruit is 
look at verse 2, is pruned or purged by the Father so he will bear more fruit. Well, if you've ever done any gardening, any pruning, you know it involves cutting, snipping, cutting back, etc. So the implication is this. Sometimes the pruning process is painful. But that opens us up to be cleansed. And the cleansing agent is the Word of God. Have you ever noticed how much more open you are to the Word of God when you're hurting? When we get in tough times, we seem to be far more hungry for the truth of God, far more eager. When you're going through deep waters, your heart is generally more sensitive to the Word of God. And that is why Jesus introduces that concept in the very next verse. Notice verse 3. He says, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. It's the Word of God that washes us at salvation, and it's the Word of God that purges us and cleans us so that we will bear more fruit. Beloved, if you're not bearing fruit in your life like you ought to be, then I guarantee you, it comes according to this passage, it comes back to your relationship to the vine and your relationship to the Word of God. Your relationship to the vine and your relationship to the Word of God. So Jesus says in verse 4, here's the word, abide in me. That's the word that locked in John's mind. That's the, the, the word that was etched into his memory. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide is obviously the key concept of these verses because the word is used ten times in the first eleven verses of this chapter. Did you catch that? Ten times in the first eleven verses. John is using the term as a synonym for believing, trusting, faith, just as there are various levels or degrees of faith and trust among believers, so there are various degrees of abiding among Christians. What I mean is, some Christians believe in Christ at salvation, but their faith doesn't grow very much. And therefore, their fruit in life is limited. They're believers, they've trusted Christ, but they just don't grow in their faith. Others believe in Christ at salvation, and their faith grows with the result that they produce much fruit, as Jesus says in verse 8. Here in this section, Jesus is calling his disciples to grow in their faith as they had been doing. He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The disciples were abiding, but they needed to stay there, remain there to grow stronger. Then and only then would they bear fruit. I mean, think about this. A branch has no capability whatsoever to produce even the minutest amount of fruit. A branch in and of itself has no ability whatsoever to produce fruit. It must remain and grow strong in its relationship to the vine. And so Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to notice the progression of thought that Jesus has made through these verses. At the beginning of verse 2, he talks about fruit. 
At the end of verse 2, he talks about more fruit. And now here in verse 5, he is encouraging much fruit. The point is clear. He is the source of fruitfulness. Let's not get sidetracked into concentrating on fruit and miss the point of the passage. The point that Jesus is making is that He is the source of fruitfulness. He's the vine. We're simply branches. It's not our methods. It's not our working. It's not our striving. It's not our commitment that produces fruit, beloved. It's His life. It's His life flowing through us. And when the life of the Lord Jesus is flowing through us, then He will bear fruit through us. So Jesus says, abide. Abide in me. John says in 1 John 2, 6, abide. Don't forget what Jesus said 50, 60 years ago. Abide. Why is this so important? Why was this so important to John? Why why is this so important to Jesus? Because look at what He said in verse 8. By this... My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. That's why this is so important to Jesus. And John knew how important this was to Jesus. And that is why 50 to 60 years later, he wrote in 1 John 2, 6, He who says he abides in him. He who says he is abiding in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. If we're going to walk as he walked, we're going to have to abide in him. And that's the key. That is absolutely the key to the Christian life, beloved. That we abide in Christ. That we draw our life from Christ. It is not our methods, our working, our striving, our commitment. It is Christ. He is the source. So when we ask the question, how? How could I possibly, as a mere human being, how can I walk as Jesus walked? That's the, that's the exhortation of 1 John 2, 6. How can I do that? That seems unattainable. Seems unreachable. How can I walk as Jesus walked? How can I be like Him? Abide in Him. Stay there. Draw your life from Him. And that enables us to walk as He walked. To live as He lived. And to be like He was. Let's bow together as we pray. As you bow your head and close your eyes... Here at the end, think about what you have seen this morning from God's Word. We began by looking in 1 John 2 at the doctrine of assurance. Do you have assurance? Absolute assurance. Are you completely certain that you are a child of God? Completely certain that your sins are forgiven? No doubts, no questions, no hesitancy whatsoever. You can be certain. In fact, God wants us to be sure, to be certain. It doesn't depend on us. If it depended on us and our goodness, we could never be certain. We'd always wonder. But it depends on Christ, His work on the cross in our place. If you've yielded your life to Christ, if you've trusted Him, if you've received Him, and you know Him personally, you can have assurance. You should have assurance based on the promise of God in His Word. If there are doubts that are plaguing you, questions in your mind, 
Settle those this very moment. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Tell him, Lord Jesus, I want you in, the, in my life. Forgive me of my sins. Grant me your salvation. I want to be your child, and I want to know with certainty that I belong to you. And if you are a child of God, and you have that assurance, then you see the exhortation that's given to us as God's people. If we say we are abiding in Him, we ought to walk as He walked. We ought to live as He lived. Don't pass that off as unattainable. Don't say, well, I, I can never be like Jesus, so I'll just be like me. I'll just be who I am. No, no, that's settling for way less than what God wants of us. Jesus in John 15 told his disciples, abide in me. If you'll abide in me, you'll draw your life from me, draw your strength from me. You'll bear fruit. I will produce my life through you, in you. That's how we're to live life. Abiding in the vine, walking as Jesus walked, living as he lived. Child of God, is that your focus? Is that your pursuit? Is that your passion? And whatever, whatever God has called you to be in life, whatever your vocation, whatever your activities, do you seek to be like Christ and represent him? That is our calling as God's people. Father, you have encouraged our hearts this morning through your word. You have challenged our hearts through your word. You have instructed us through your word. And we thank you for the precious and priceless truth that is in its pages. We pray that we would digest it, understand it, embrace it, believe it, act on it, live it. For anyone who is gathered here with us this morning who lacks salvation or lacks assurance of salvation, may your Holy Spirit stir that person's heart so that he or she would surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ this very moment and be able to live life with complete assurance that he or she is right with you, sins forgiven, headed for heaven as your child. And for those of us who are in your family through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus, we see our responsibility. If we're in your family and we call ourselves Christians, little Christs, then we need to live as he lived. We need to represent him. We confess that we so easily fail, so often fail, Thank you for your restoration. Grant us the strength as we abide in Christ to live like he did, to represent him to people around us. For this is our prayer together in his wonderful name. Amen.